right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brand Bible Church. Um, the text that we're going to look at this morning is, in my view, extremely important. At the heart of this text is the deity of Christ. This is one of those texts, you know, you read over and you just don't seem to catch the significance. But as we read through this from the beginning of five into this text, I hope this morning that you will see the importance of this. And I need to start by apologizing because I just feel like there's no way I can bring out what's in here. I just feel there's so much here. So I'm going to ask you that you would please read over this text, that you would meditate on this text, that you would study this text and be Bereans and let the Lord speak to you because I think this is a significantly important text in the Word of God on this question about the deity of Christ. Uh, J.C. Ryle states, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regularly statement of His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship as we find in this discourse. Like I said, this is a, such a strong discourse, and, and it, because it shows the unity, that unity brings out the deity. Now in our last study, we saw the Lord Yeshua heal a man who was been laying by this pool in Bethesda for 38 years. And our Lord goes to the man and He says to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately, the guy gets up, picks up his pallet, and he walks. This man is instantly healed. And it's the healing of this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda that draws considerable attention to the Lord. Remember the previous miracles? They've been kind of covert. Not a lot of people knew what was going on. Well, this is an open public miracle. And it was done on the Sabbath, which really prompted the Jewish leaders to view Yeshua as a lawbreaker. They didn't care about the miracle. They didn't care that this man who was sick for 38 years is now healed. They didn't care that this was a miracle that only God could do. All they cared about was He was breaking the Sabbath. So this controversy broke out. And this was really Yeshua's purpose. Okay? The dialogue in verses 19 through 47 is the most complete explanation of God the Son's relationship to God the Father that you will find anywhere in the Gospels. Yeshua's dialogue is divided up into two parts. The first part includes verses 19 to 30, which Yeshua addresses both the both the equity and the distinction between the Father and the Son. God the Father and God the Son are equal. And all the Son's power and authority comes from the Father. Now the second part includes verses 31-47 to and addresses the diversity of God the Father and God the Son. They're two distinct persons. The Son does what He has seen the Father do, and the Father bears witness to the Son. Now today we're going to look at just the first half of the first part. I tried to do it all, I just could not do it, alright? Because like I said, this is a very significant test. So let's back up a bit and get the context here. When accused of breaking the Sabbath, because He healed a man, Yeshua didn't argue with the Jews over the way they'd misinterpreted what was actually written about the Sabbath in the Tanakh. He didn't get into that. He didn't say, hey, you guys, everybody sit down, sit down. Get your, get your Torahs out. Let's have a Torah study. I want to show you what the Torah actually says 
about the Sabbath because you guys are really confused. He doesn't do that. What he does in verse 17 is to make a statement that enrages the Jews to the point that they want to kill him. But he answered them, they're being accused, he's being accused of breaking the Sabbath. My father is working until now. And I myself am working. So Yeshua justified his Sabbath healing by reminding the Jews that they admitted that Yahweh worked on the Sabbath. Alright? They had to admit that. Because they believed everything that happened happened at the hand of Yahweh. If the sun came up, they knew it was Yahweh who was doing it. If the wind blew, it was Yahweh. If the rain fell, it was Yahweh. If the grass grew, it was Yahweh. They knew Yahweh continued to do His work of judgment and His work of redemption on the Sabbath. They knew He was working on the Sabbath. And this explains the violence of the reaction in verse 18 to Yeshua. Because the Sabbath privilege was peculiar to Yahweh and no one was equal to Yahweh. So how can you be saying you're working with Him? No, that's blasphemy. He says, I myself am working. You know, in claiming the right to work even as the Father worked, Yeshua here is claiming to be Yahweh. This is what enrages them. He doesn't bother to try to straighten them out on their view. He just says, even, you know, forget your crazy view. I'm Yahweh. I can do whatever I want. He's claiming to be the I Am. And the Jews, unlike so many people today, they knew exactly what He was saying. He was saying that as the eternal God does His work all the time, so He is claiming to do the same thing, to work the same pattern that Yahweh works. This shocked, this angered the Jewish leaders, but it shouldn't surprise us if we're familiar with the New Testament. It's loaded with this stuff. As we look at the New Testament, we see Yeshua is credited with doing the same things that the Tanakh credited Yahweh with doing. As we have already seen in this study, Yeshua is, created, is credited with creating the universe. That's how we began this Gospel. John 1, 1-3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Word here is Christ. And Eliezer uses the Greek verb here, imi, which means to be or to exist. And he suggests a continued existence. At the beginning of eternity, there was nothing else, but the Word existed. And He was with. He was there from the very beginning. He existed just as Yahweh existed from the beginning. And the Word was with Yahweh. The theological importance of this word is that they distinguish God the Word from God the Father. He was with Him. See, this discounts modalism. Modalism is the view that, you know, all the members of the Trinity are just one person. They just change outfits or change roles. Now I'm going to be the Son. Now I'm going to be the Father. Now I'll be the Spirit. That's modalism. There's just, you know, there's one God. He, he just acts in different roles. They don't understand the Trinity. John is telling us that although the Godhead is one, holy and eternal God, God the Word and God the Father are not the same person. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. This statement couldn't be much clearer. In fact, four Greek words 
that make up this might be the clearest declaration of the deity of Yeshua in all Scripture. Again, the Greek verb imi, which was, it means to be or to exist, suggests continued existence. So the word always existed as Yahweh. The word who was equal as God, and is God created all things, and not only did He create all things, you know, deism says, yes, God created all things, then He left. And He just kind of wound it up like a watch and said, go on. He's not really involved. He just created it and let it go. But that's not what the Scripture says. Hebrews 1, 1-3 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom we appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. Again, He was the Creator. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And one of the most remarkable statements ever said about Him, it says of Christ He upholds all things by the word of His power. The word upholds here is the Greek word pharaoh, which means supporting or maintaining. It is used here in the present tense implying implying continuous action. This is divine providence, people. Everything in the universe is sustained at this moment by our Lord Yeshua. And can you imagine what would happen if He relinquished that sustaining power? It would go out of existence. We would cease to be. So Yeshua's claim to be doing what the Father was doing shouldn't shock us as it shocked the Jewish leaders. What Yeshua explained in His response to the Jews and what we understand today under the term Trinity is that there are three separate persons in the Godhead who at one and the same time are totally interrelated and interdependent. There's not three gods. There's one God. But that one God comprises three distinct but equal and interdependent persons. Don't think about it too long. You'll blow a gasket, okay? All right, back to John 5.17. By calling God my Father, Yeshua is claiming the status of divine sonship for Himself. See, He's declaring Himself equal with God, for although the Son is less than the Father in His humanity, He says this in 14.28, He says, You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you love Me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. In His humanity... Father is greater, but He is equal to God in His divinity. He said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now as a result of saying this, the Jews again sought to kill Him. He's just making them mad. When Yeshua asked for, you know, why are you killing me? I did a lot of good works. Which good work are you stoning me for? And they replied, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you... Being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, they understood what he was saying. Clearly, you're trying to say you're equal with God. Yeshua also said, I have, have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This means that Yeshua implicitly claimed equality with Yahweh. You've seen me, you've seen him. Now, many who call themselves Christians today don't get this. They don't get the deity of Christ. But the Jewish leaders understood his claims. He was clearly saying that he 
is Yahweh. He says, my father is working until now. I myself am working. This is what really sets the Jewish authorities off. He's not just a Sabbath breaker. Now he's a blasphemer. They understood his words to mean nothing short of peculiar personal sonship and thus equality of the nature of God. You know, to our contemporary Western mind, the idea of a son connotes a different person. But to the ancient Eastern mind, the thought process was a son was an extension of the father. The word connotated identification with rather than distinction from. The ancients considered a good son as one who followed in his father's footsteps exactly. So by calling Yahweh his father and claiming to do the work of Yahweh, he is considered to have blasphemed God, which by their account and by the Torah would have incurred a death penalty. Leviticus 24.16 Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. They got everybody involved. They didn't want it done in a room somewhere. No one could see what's going on. This was so, the purpose of this was so all will hear and fear. All right, you're throwing stones and watching your neighbor get put to death. You realize this is pretty serious. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name Hashem, he shall be put to death. This is why the Jews responded the way they do. In, in this verse, in the next verse, it says, for this reason, Because he said, my father's working, I'm working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Yeshua's contemporaries clearly see him as claiming to be equal with God. Now, liberal interpreters who say that Yeshua never claimed to be God, they have a difficult time with this passage. They really do. He has clearly claimed to be God. There's never a question in the Jews' mind that he said he was equal. They got it. That's what they said was the ultimate blasphemy. They said he makes himself equal with God. Notice something very important that's not said in this text. Alright? They're saying that in verse 19, Yeshua is going to start to speak and he's going to start to teach us. But I want you to pay attention to what's not here. Yeshua doesn't respond by saying, Oh, no, 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 you guys got me all wrong. I'm not claiming to be God. No, no, no. I'm a prophet. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good moral example. No, he didn't say that at all. Instead of disagreeing with them in this text, he spends the whole rest of the text defending his deity. You remember what Thomas said after when he saw Yeshua after the resurrection? What did he say? Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Oh, Thomas is calling Yeshua God. What's Yeshua's response to that? Hey, Thomas, no, no, come on. You, you know me better than that. You know I'm not God. Get up. That No, that's not it. No, he says in verse 29, Yeshua said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen. And yet, he doesn't correct Thomas because Thomas is right. But do you remember what happens when an angel responds here in Revelation 22 when John falls down before the angel says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. Wow, this is amazing. He's just, you know, he's blown away. He bows down and who showed me these things. But he said, the angel says, do not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant of yours. Your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Don't, don't give me any kind of glory, any kind of honor. I don't, I'm just an angel. You worship God. Worship is restricted to God. And Yeshua claimed worship. He accepted worship. He accepted the honor because He was God. Only God is to be worshipped. And so Yeshua didn't bother correcting them. We need to get this, okay? Yeshua claimed to be Yahweh. Now, about this Yeshua claiming to be Yahweh that's clearly in the text, C.S. Lewis said this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. Now, Lewis didn't say that. He's quoting someone else. He goes, that's the one thing we mustn't say. Alright? In other words, you can't say, yeah, he's a great teacher. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a good moral teacher. Okay? I love the way Lewis says this. He said, he'd be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else, he'd be the devil of hell. You can't say, I'm a good teacher and claim to be God. Good teachers don't claim to be God, unless they're God. J.B. Phillips saying something along the same line as Lewis says, he would be a man afflicted with folly de grandeur. You must take, you must take your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. It's not an option, all right? And people, the heart and soul of the Christian faith, the heart and soul of the gospel is a right view of Yeshua. He is God. If he's not God, he can't help you. He can't die for you. He can't pay your sin debt. He has to pay his own. Now, there are some who see Yeshua as only a man. Oh, they say, He's a good man. He was a great teacher. He was an excellent example of moral conduct. But you can't say any of those things about a man who claimed to be God. You've already seen in this fourth gospel that Yeshua took the sacred name of God. I am. Ehia. And He applied it to Himself. Over and over again. He refers to himself as Ehi, I am, the very sacred name of God that a Jew wouldn't even speak because he thought it was too sacred to even say. Yeshua took it and he claimed it for himself. He claimed to be Yahweh. He didn't claim to be another God that was equal with God. He claimed to be God. Alright, so Yeshua was first accused of breaking the Sabbath and of instructing the healed paralytic to do the same. But after the Lord defends His actions to the Jewish authorities, they consider Him guilty of even greater offense, claiming to be equal as God. And for the Jews, there's really nothing more serious than the offense of blasphemy. The words of the rest of this text, 19-47, to are Yeshua's response to the accusation of blasphemy made against Him. Because He claimed to be God. Alright, so the rest of this, He's going to teach us some things. Alright? Starts out in verse 19, Therefore Yeshua answered, And was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things, the Son also does in like manner. 
So Yeshua introduced his reply with another solemn affirmation. He says, truly, truly, this is amin, amin. Amen in the Hebrew, is a, that's a translation, transliteration of the Hebrew. It has the idea of trustworthiness, and it came to affirm a truth. Now the double amen found in the initial position of a sentence is a unique way of drawing attention to Yeshua's significant trustworthy statements of revelation. And he does this three times in, in our verses here. He does it, you do it again in verse 24 and then 25. So he does it three times into a Hebrew. The number three is the number of divine perfection. What I'm saying to you is the truth here about who I am. He says, the son can do nothing of himself. What does that say? Well, it says he doesn't act independently. He can't act independently. He can do nothing of himself. Yeshua began by asserting, assuring the Jewish leaders he was not claiming independence from the Father. He was definitely subordinate to Him. And He followed the Father's lead. It was also impossible for the Son to act independently or to set Himself against the Father as against another God. See, it's impossible for the Son to act independently of the Father because they share the same nature. Can't act independently. He says, for whatever the Father does, those things the Son also does in a like manner. Now, the Greek text of verses 19-23 is structured around four different gar in the Greek, or for or because in the English. The first one introduces the last clause of verse 19 here, for or because, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does. So, in Yeshua, He is saying, we see Yahweh. Whatever Yeshua did was an act of Yahweh. Whatever He said was the Word of Yahweh. There's no moment in His life and no action of which He did not express the life and actions of the Father. This, again, it's another claim to deity. For the only one who can conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father. He has to be divine. Can any of us say, whatever the Father does, that's what I do? You want to even come close to anything like that? Huh? No, you, you better not, because, you know, we don't still stone people. We might start again, okay? I mean, you just don't, you don't claim that, but Yeshua could claim that. He did only what the Father did. Their unity, they are one, one nature. Carson says this, it is impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set Him over against the Father as another God. For all the Son does is both coincident with and coextensive with that the Father does. So He's only doing what He sees the Father doing and nothing else. Now listen to me, this, this verse supports a doctrine that there's a lot of controversy over. This verse supports the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Alright? Now theologians want to argue about when Yeshua was incarnate, could He have sinned? And they go back, oh, of course He could have sinned. Well, could the Father have sinned? Well, Yeshua only does the things that the Father does. Okay? Yeshua was impeccable. The Son can do nothing but what He sees the Father doing. That's all He can do. And the Father can't sin. And he never acts independently of the Father. 1431 says, 
but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So he couldn't sin. Yeshua in action, to see him in action is to see the Father in action. To accuse Yeshua of sin would be to accuse God of sin. To accuse Yeshua of violating the Sabbath would be to accuse the Father of violating the Sabbath. And to accuse Yeshua of blasphemy is to accuse the Father. See, he's using this argument to the Jews, you can't say any of those things because I'm equal with the Father. He must act and speak like God because He is God. He cannot act contrary to His nature. He he has to act as the Father acts. And the Father and the Son are of one essence. Look at Philippians, what Paul is saying, 2, 5, and 6, talking about the incarnation. Have this attitude in yourselves. You know, what, what I marvel at when I read Philippians 2, this is one of the greatest theological texts of the New Testament. It's also said to be an early Christian hymn. This is, their, this is what they sang about, okay? It wasn't make me feel good song. They're singing doctrine, people. Pure doctrine. But he takes this deep doctrine of the kenosis and he uses it as an illustration. He says, hey, you guys, you believers, have the attitude in you that was in Christ. In the incarnation. In other words, selflessly give yourself to others. Think about others. Put yourself there before others. So you can minister to them. Alright, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word existed here, huparko, and that's not the most common word for being in the Greek. That would be emi. But it's a verb that stresses the essence of a person's nature. It's to express the continued state of a thing. It's unalterable. It's unchangeable. Paul said Yeshua unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. That speaks of pre-existence. And the word form here is morphe. This has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton and Milligan say morphe is a form which truly fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence of essential being. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. And when Paul uses huparko being in morphe form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua the Christ always existed in the unchangeable essence in the being of God. Yeshua the Christ is God and He always was. This is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Yeshua is Yahweh. Now the emphasis in this section on John 5 is on Yeshua being an extension of the Father and the legitimacy of His continuing the Father's work on the Sabbath. It's impossible for the Son to take independent self-determined action that would set Him over against the Father as another God. He says, I'm just, just doing what my Father does. Verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing and the Father will show him the greatest work, greater works than these, so that you will marvel. He begins this with a gar for that explains how the Son can do whatever the Father does. It's because the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son has already been stated in John three thirty five, but here, there he used the verb agapao. We're familiar with agape, love, but here he used the verb phileo. Which is really kind of interesting. Because Phileo is, that's where we get the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. 
Phileo is an expression of love towards a person, a brotherly love. It's affection. It has to do with, you know, your, you share common delights. He said the father has affection for the son. They love the same things. He shows him all things that he himself is doing. So the father's love for the son display is displayed by the fact that he shows the son everything. Now, I would think that this refers particularly to the incarnation. Because prior to the incarnation, you know, they possessed all knowledge inherently. But in the incarnation, the father, remember the son's acting in the power of the spirit, the father is showing him all things that he himself is doing. He says that the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. What are the these things here? Well, it's the healing of the paralytic by the pool and commanding him to carry his mat and get up on the Sabbath. The greater works that he's talking about here are listed in verse 21 and 22. The first one being power of life and resurrection. That's greater than they've seen so far. And the second is the authority of judgment in verse 22. Because there's two things according to the rabbis of the time that mark God out from humans. Firstly, He alone was a life giver. Secondly, He was the judge of all. These things the rabbi said could not be done by any human. They were entirely God's prerogative. And that's why he's going to go into this and say that they are his prerogative. This word marvel here is from the Greek thumadzo. This is the word was used when Yeshua and the disciples are on the boat and the storm comes up and the disciples, oh, we're going to die. And he speaks and it goes calm and they marveled. He said, you're going to marvel when you see the things that are yet to come. The miracles that are yet to come, they're going to make you marvel at what you're going to see. In verse 21, it says, Just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Again, he starts with Agar, introduces an illustration of the principal truth articulated in verse 19 and 20. The Son does what the Father does. The Jews acknowledge that only Yahweh could raise the dead. This involves overcoming the forces of sin, the forces of death. Yeshua claimed that authority now. And he's going to demonstrate it when we get to chapter 11. He's going to stand at the tomb of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth! Now, the reason he said Lazarus, because everybody else would have rose at that same time if he hadn't made specific who he's talking about. Lazarus, you come forth! Alright? He raises the dead. It's just an illustration. Rabbi Yohanan asserted that three keys remain in God's hand and were not entrusted to representatives. Alright? The key of rain. Only God can make it rain the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection from the dead. So we see this view of the Jews in the story of Naaman, this idea that they believed only God raised the dead. Remember the story of Naaman? Naaman was a general in the Syrian army, a mighty general. He was loved by the king. He was a powerful general, but he had a problem. What was Naaman's problem? He was a leper. That kind of made it rough on him, okay? You know? Well, one day a Syrian girl who was the maid of the wife of Naaman said, hey, would to God that Naaman would visit the prophet in Samaria because he could actually heal him of his leprosy. And somehow this word got back to the king. And the king liked Naaman, so he said, hey, we've got to send you over there and we've got to get you healed. So he put some gifts together. Take these gifts to the prophet. Let's get you healed. So Naaman goes, he takes all these gifts that he has with him, and he goes to the king of Samaria and he gives him a letter by the king. And the letter from the king of Assyria to the king of Samaria says this. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, Now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you would cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) 
How'd you like to be a king and get that letter from another king? Well, of course the king goes, this is nuts. He's just looking for a cause of war. I don't, I don't heal lepers. He, you know, of course the king's not even thinking about, you know, what's going, really going on here because he's not a spiritual man. You know, so the king's just, he's afraid. You know, they just want an occasion to come to war. Verse 7 says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill or make alive? That this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. See, the king understood what the Jews believed, that only God had the prerogative to give life. They understood Deuteronomy 32-39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put the death and give life. I have wounded it, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 1 Samuel 2.6 Yahweh kills, Yahweh makes alive. It's the prerogative of God to give life. We understand that. But Yeshua says the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Now He's talking to these Jewish people and they're like, are you absolutely crazy? You're just, you know, we accuse you of blasphemy and you just go on a blasphemy rampage. You just keep making it worse. The only reason Yeshua can say this is because He's equal with God. Now who are the dead here? He raises the dead. Who's he referring to? Well, I think the primary reference here is to the spiritual dead, but it doesn't matter because he can do the physical or the spiritual dead. Either one. And where it says here, the Son gives life to whom He wishes, shouldn't it say, the Son gives life to whoever believes in Him? Because it's kind of leaving out us, isn't it? He just gives life to who He wishes? No, because people, we can't believe in Him or we can't know the Father unless the Son wills it. I know this is one of them Calvinistic doctrines that people hate. Oh, what about my will? God doesn't care about your will. I hate to tell you that, okay? But He's, you know, His will is what matters, okay? Look what it says in Luke 10.22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son will reveal Him. Now, you may be thinking, well, John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right. But it begins that God so loves the world, and referring to His elect. He loves them, so He wills them to come to faith. Believing doesn't bring life. That's backwards, but that's what our society believes. The Christian society anyway believes you believe, you get life. Really. So if you're dead, you can just will yourself back to life then. That's a cool trick. No, you can't. It's up to Him. So the Son gives life to who He wishes. It's His prerogative, a sovereign prerogative, just like it's Yahweh's sovereign prerogative. If Yeshua was not God, that would be a declaration of a madman. I give life to whoever I want. Really? What mere man could claim anything like that? His power to give physical life to Lazarus is going to show that he has the sovereign power over spiritual life to raise the spiritual dead. Now verse 22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, we start out with the gar... A connective here. 
the role once belonging to the Father, that of judgment, has now been given over to the Son exclusively. See, the roles of the Father and Son are parallel in verse 21. They both give life. But there's a distinction between them in this verse. The Father and the Son both give life, but the Father has commanded all judgment to the Son. That was something new to the Jews. See, they held the Father. The Father was the judge of all people. Genesis 18.25 Far be it from you to do such a thing and slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. See, throughout the pages of Tanakh, God had frequently exercised judgment in the lives of His covenant people and surrounding nations. Boy, if you read through the Tanakh, you see judgment after judgment after judgment. But in the end of the age, he's saying the last great judgment, it's all going to be handed over to the Son. Small and great will stand before Him. Here, however, the Son insists that the office of judge, whether present or in the last day, it's all been put in His hands. He now is the ultimate judge. He gives life. He judges people. Again, I just... These are views they asserted of the Father, and now they're just being shaken to their core as he, you know, when you get accused of blasphemy, you usually try to talk your way out of it, not make sure they're, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what I'm saying, okay? Verse 23 is a verse you've got to mark. You've got to hang on to it. Look what this verse says. So that all who honor the Son, even, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. You honor both or you honor neither. There's no other, there's no, you know, well, yeah, I think God the Father's great, but this Yeshua, I'm not sure who He is. Well, then you don't understand God. The reason the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son is now disclosed so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You know, subordination usually results in less honor. But the Father has guaranteed that the Son will receive equal honor with Himself by committing the role of judgment entirely to Him. Therefore, failure to honor the Son reflects failure to honor the Father. And honoring the Son is honoring the Father. Now, how can Yeshua say this in light of Isaiah 42.8? I am Yahweh. That's My name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Yahweh will not share His honor with another. So for Him to share His honor with the Son must mean that the Son and the Father are one in essence. What man, what created being could say that we should honor Him just as we honor the Father? Clearly, people, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. So I said this text is so powerful, so important. You've got to understand who He says He is. You don't get accused of blasphemy and then just keep digging the hole deeper unless you're pretty sure about where you're going with this, okay? Now, when you read the liberal theologians, they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. (laughs) I wonder, have you ever really read the Bible? When you make claims like that? Have you really read it that you understand it that you're going to say that? Have you ever read John chapter 5 to make some kind of claim like that? Over and over Yeshua claims to be Yahweh. He does it all through this text. He insists that He is to be worshipped just as Yahweh is. 
He's to be honored. He's to be praised. He's to be adored. He's to be respected and trusted, obeyed the same way as we do the Father. Because they're one. So when the person says, well, Yeshua's not really God of very God. He's only not honoring the Son. He's dishonoring the Father also. That's a serious thing. Then when a man says, well, God is God, but Yeshua is only the Son of God, meaning He's less than the Father. He's the Son. But see, that's our thinking. We think Son is less than the Father. Hebrew thinking, they were equal. He is denying the honor to the Father when you deny the Son. He's dishonoring God. He who hates me hates my Father also. There are those who claim to be within I say claim, evangelical Christianity, who teach that the Jews don't have to believe in Christ. That somehow, if they're just good Jews, and they believe the Tanakh, and they believe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Israel, the Creator, that God doesn't require them to believe in Yeshua, because they're Jews. People, this is heresy at the most destructive level. Most destructive to the Jews. Okay? Who in the world is Yeshua talking to in our text? Jews. Who was who made up the early church for the first ten years? Jews. But they didn't need the gospel. That's the only person they preached to for the first ten years. Yeshua finally had to say, get out of Jerusalem, go. I'll bring persecution. He brings Saul in to get him persecuted so they'll go out and start doing what he told them to do. Get out there. Well, one of the big preachers in this country, John Hagee. <laughs> yeah, big preacher. Uh, however you want to take that, okay. <laughs> the guy is off his rocker, okay. He's bat crazy as far as understanding the Scripture. The Houston newspaper quoted John Hagee as saying, I'm not trying to convert the Jewish people to the Christian faith. What, what are you trying to do for them then? What else is there to be converted to? There is only one gospel. The paper goes on to quote Hagee as saying, in fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. Yeah, God's people, don't waste your time with them. Don't waste your time on the people that Yeshua came to save. Don't waste your time with those people. He said, the Jewish person has his roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. Really? What was that early church made up of? I, I really, I, I, how does this guy get away with this? I mean, how does someone say, well, wait a minute, the early church, weren't they all Jews? No, they're not going to convert to Christianity. There's no form of Christian evangelism that has failed so miserably as evangelizing the Jewish people. Yeah, Pentecost, ah, that's all a bunch of nonsense, man. You know, what, was, what good was all that stuff? He says they already have a faith structure. Everyone else, whether Buddhist, Baha, needs to believe in Yeshua, but not the Jews. Watch, everybody needs to believe in Jesus. But not the Jews. Not the Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God. Yeah, called the Old Covenant. <laughs> that, that He promised to those Jews, I will give you a new covenant that came to the church, but it wasn't for them. They're stuck in the Old Covenant. Alright? Like I said, how, how, 
This is frustrating. Listen, here's what's really frustrating. This man, Hagi, calls himself a friend of Israel. Friends like this, they don't need enemies, okay? He's their worst enemy. He's telling them, you don't need the Messiah. Listen, once Messiah came, any person, Jew or Gentile, who does not believe in Him, dishonors the Father. So Hagee says, everyone needs to believe in Jesus, but not the Jews. But the Scripture says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God, Jews, does not have life. Now he doesn't, I guess, he doesn't know these verses because he's a Bible scholar, you know, self-appointed Bible scholar, but he doesn't know this because he's stuck in a system. Listen, no one can know God who does not know the Son. And conversely, no one can honor or praise the Father who does not honor and praise the Son. Anyone who says that they worship God, but who denies the deity of Christ, they have neither the Father nor the Son. These people include Muslims, Jews, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Unitarian Universalists, anyone that denies the deity of the Son, they don't have the Father. doesn't matter what they say. You know, so many people want to take Yeshua and add Him to what they already believe. Oh, yeah, I believe He's a great prophet. He claimed to be God. How is that a great prophet? He's a lunatic. He's a liar. Or He's the Lord. you got to take your pick. Okay? You can't just add Him to your menagerie of other gods. So what works does the Son do? He does the same that the Father does. And the same that the rabbis recognize as legitimate works of God on the Sabbath. So see, the rabbis said, okay, God, Yahweh can do that, but you not so much. Well, he says, no, I can do it too because I'm Yahweh. Whoa. <laughs> He's really blowing their minds here. Verse 24, truly, truly, I mean, I mean, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, the Father has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Again, he introduces this verse with this solemn formula, and he develops the one theme introduced in the preceding verses. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. Now, the Greek construction here makes this a single coordinate description. Just as the Son healed the invalid by the pool of Bethsaida by his word, so also it's his word that brings eternal life. He who hears my word and believes. You gotta hear, you gotta believe. Hearing Yeshua's word is identical to hearing God's word. Since the Son speaks only what the Father gives him to say, the Son represents the Father to humankind. So when we place our faith in the Son, we're placing our faith in the Father as well. Now hearing in this context, as often elsewhere, includes belief, which brings eternal life. Now what does death unto life mean here? What's he mean? But he has passed from death unto life. Well, he's saying Christ has rescued the fallen family of Adam and reinstated him in the divine family of God. That's Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead, that's the death. We're dead in transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. We're alive because we're in Christ. Now, the two conditions here of eternal life that he lays out here, and I think this is it, people. You want to know... What causes a person to be saved? You know, it's not a, you know, four spiritual laws. There's just two, okay? Know the truth, believe the truth. You can't believe what you don't know. So you have to know it first. 
You have to hear it, and then you believe it. And that's all there is to it, people. And listen, because God promised it, you can have security. You know, you ask most Christians today, what do you base your security on? I go to church every Sunday. I tithe. I try to live a good life. I try to, you know, do... That's all nonsense. That's security based on your performance. In other words, I'm going to heaven because I'm really a good person. Your security is based on the promise of Christ. That's what it's based... Christ and Christ alone. That's it. That's the only thing you got, people. All right? You don't have anything else. Your assurance of eternal life rests on the promise of the Son. I've heard the Gospel. I trust what Christ did for me. Therefore, I have eternal life. Now, the believer does not come into judgment, he says. Why? Because God says, you know, you're kind of a nice person. I'm going to let you slide. You know, like parents do with their kids. You do that one more time. And then the kid does it three more times. If you do that one more time, you just keep letting them slide, right? God doesn't just let us slide, okay? Judgment has been enacted in a substitute, okay? The justice of God demanded that sin be paid for. So we're not getting slept in the back door of heaven. We have a right to be there because the payment has been paid in full. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation. Katakrima. No judgment for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ paid it already. You're in Christ, you don't get judged. He paid your judgment for you. It's it. It's done. It's paid. Don't walk around like, you know, man, I just hope God, you know, lets me slide. He's not letting you slide. Nobody slides. It's paid for. Understand who you are. Identity is powerful. You're a child of the King. You are, if you have trusted Christ, a son of God. That's powerful stuff, okay? If we had a king in this country, a legitimate one, and you were a child, <laughs> and you were a child of that king, you'd be, you know, you wouldn't walk around beat down and discouraged all the time. You know, my daddy is the king. Well, our king is much higher than over a land, okay? Our king is the king of the world, and we are his children. And we have a right to be in his presence. So we have seen that the son does what the father does. The son raised the dead. He gives life just like the Father does. The Son has been given the Father's authority to judge. The Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. In fact, not to honor the Son is not to honor the Father. If we look at these affirmations of Christ and compare them to the Tanakh's concept of Yahweh, we find that Yeshua is here claiming to have the power and authority that is Yahweh's alone. And only His. And again, He's, he's defending a claim of blasphemy. This is not how you would do it. Unless you're God, alright? It is Yahweh who has the power of life and death. Yahweh is the source and giver of life. Yahweh is the one who brings life out of nothing. It is Yahweh who is the judge of all the earth, to whom all are accountable. It is Yahweh who alone is worthy of honor, worship, and praise, who alone must be honored as Yahweh. Yet here, Yeshua claims all of these rights, all this power, all this authority, all this preeminence and respect, that has been given to the Father, must be accorded to Him as well. Whoever does, does not come to the Son doesn't have life. That is the Christian message, people. It is all about Yeshua. In John 14, 6, Yeshua said, I am the way, 
the only way. I am the truth, the only truth, and the life, the only life. Nobody comes to the Father, but you can't get there anywhere. Okay, there's no way to have a relationship with the Father apart is from through the Son, since the Son has come. So anybody who claims to know God or have some, you know, you got to find out what do they think of Yeshua. Acts 4.12, Peter says, there's salvation in no one else. This, this just doesn't happen. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Our text this morning in John 5.19-24 makes it very clear that Yeshua is Yahweh. To view Him as any less than the Father is to dishonor the Father. The only reason that He shares Yahweh's honor is because He's Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for this magnificent text. Lord, I pray that You would help us to grasp what's here, Lord. It is absolutely incredible to be accused of blasphemy and then to launch off into a teaching that just reaffirms everything they're saying would be incredible unless you were Yahweh. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. I pray we'd cling to it. I pray we'd understand texts like this that we could defend who you are, Lord. Help us when those come to us who say they don't need you to have a relationship with the Father. And Father, we ask your forgiveness for those out there teaching, Lord, this nonsense that there's some people who just do not need Yeshua. Help us to have a clear voice, Lord, to spread the truth of your word. Thank you, Father. Amen.